sometime after the Buddha's enlightenment, which was in Bodh Gaya under the Bodhi tree, he walked to a place outside of Banarath called Sarnath. There was a deer park, and it's where the five ascetics that he had done the ascetic practices with, it's where they were living. He returned to them after his enlightenment with quite an extraordinary declaration. Buddha said how he had understood the nature of suffering, and the causes of suffering, and that he had realized the end of suffering, and that he understood the path which leads to the end of suffering. Just imagine for yourselves the depth of understanding, the depth of wisdom, which would be necessary to make such a declaration. That we understand these things in such completeness and such wholeness. What makes this statement so alive for us today, the fact that it is still reverberating over 2,500 years later, is the explicitness of the path which leads to the end of suffering. It's precisely because the path is so clearly laid out and so many beings have walked on this path to end suffering over all these thousands of years that this statement of these Four Noble Truths is so profound even for us now. One question for us is, are we actually using it in our life? Are we making these choices in our lives in, a, in harmony with this Eightfold Path? When I first read about it, my first interest in Buddhism, it seemed to me just like some list, and I even had quite a hard time remembering the list until I actually had to give a talk about it. You know, it didn't make, it didn't cohere very much. But over the years of practice and reflection, begin to see an amazing degree of subtlety in this Eightfold Path. And that is the interconnectedness of all the links. That is not just some abstract list of write this and write that. But it really has to do with how our life and our practice unfolds, how each is linked to the other, becomes a cause and condition for the other. Something which I think you have a deepening sense of over these months of practice is the tremendous profundity of the Buddhist teaching. You know, and sometimes things on the surface may seem very obvious or simple, and yet as we understand them more deeply, there's a profound implication in so many of the teachings. The Buddha taught this Eightfold Path as the way to the end of suffering, as the path, path to happiness, the path to freedom. <coughs> freedom from greed, freedom from hatred, from delusion. 
question which I would like to consider tonight is why right understanding is first on this path. Why is right understanding deemed so important that it's placed first on this spiritual journey? When we begin to look carefully and observe closely at our lives, we can see the critical importance that understanding plays. It's our basic viewpoints and assumptions about things which lead to the kinds of thoughts and feelings we have. It's because we understand things in a certain way that we then think about those things in a certain way and feel about them. And it's our thoughts and feelings about things which lead to actions. So there's a sequence here that's tremendously important. The way we understand things leads to our thoughts about things, and our thoughts and feelings lead to actions. But we don't very often reflect on our basic assumptions, on our underlying assumptions. We may not at all be consciously aware of the underlying viewpoints which we carry into our experience. And we've seen just historically how often tremendous breakthroughs, whether in science or in art or in people's personal lives, how tremendous breakthroughs come when we begin to question our assumptions. We're not simply living them out unconsciously or unknowingly. I'd like to offer just a few very simple examples which will illustrate this, the power of assumption, the power of viewpoint. And we look back in history for how many centuries did people believe have the viewpoint that the earth was flat? That was the accepted understanding. Out of that understanding, what kind of thoughts came? Very obvious thoughts. If the earth is flat, better not get too near the edge. You know, and so, out of that thought, there was a fear, you know, fear of going too far, fear that one might fall off. Actions that followed were that people stayed close to shore. And it took some change of understanding, some change of view, and maybe the earth is not flat, that allowed for a whole new age of exploration, of discovery. Where was that rooted? It was rooted in a change of understanding. Another kind of understanding that has been prevalent for so many centuries, and which even now we're in some way suffering the consequences of, and that is the basic assumption or viewpoint that human beings have been given dominion over this earth, and that everything is here to serve us. If this is the understanding that people have, if this is the viewpoint that people have, basically it leads to thoughts and feelings and actions of exploitation. We're here to be served by animals and the planet. 
And we see, we see the disastrous consequences of that understanding and the consequences of it. Another example of a very deeply rooted viewpoint that most of us hold to a greater or lesser extent. And that is the viewpoint or the assumption that we are essentially separate beings, essentially separate individuals, existing independently of one another. What are the consequences of this for us? And we see it in our own lives, we see it in society. From this understanding come a lot of thoughts and feelings about differences. The more we're rooted in the belief of separation, in the understanding of separation, so our mind then hones in on differences between people. And out of this thought and feeling of differences comes feelings of distrust and fear. Hatred of anybody who's different than us, which is almost everybody. And we see it. We see it in terms of religious differences or racial differences, national differences. Where Where does the hatred come from? Why do people of different religions or different nationalities hate one another? (laughs) It comes out of some underlying assumption, some underlying understanding that people are rooted in and not seeing particularly. Sometimes we see it, people who are mentally handicapped. We don't see the commonality, we see the differences and all kinds of feelings about those differences, you know, resulting, you know, as we know, in so much discrimination. Often we may not know, we may not find it easy to see our own underlying assumptions. Because there's so much a part of us, it's like we're swimming in them, we don't even know what they are. So at times it's helpful to work backward, to work backwards from our actions. Because our actions can be, after a few months of meditative practice, Maybe we become mindful of our actions, you know. So we see what we're doing. We know what we're doing. Can we begin to look backward and say, okay, what are some of the assumptions that are there behind the actions that we're performing? It's a way of investigating, a way of finding out. We can come to know how these understandings condition the personal choices we make in our lives. Again, just a few very simple examples, and these can be extrapolated upon endlessly. Maybe we begin to notice in our lives patterns of actions based on greed, based on strong desire and clinging. We watch ourselves 
over three months, take the third banana, you know, or the seventh cup of tea, or the extra cookie that really makes us sick. <laughs> so the question is, we see that action, so then we could ask ourselves, well, what's the thought behind that? What's the thought which is producing that action? The thought might be, I want to have this. I want to do this. That thought in the mind of wanting to do something, wanting to have something, precipitates the action. What's the understanding behind that thought? What's the underlying assumption behind the thought, I want that cookie, I must have it? The underlying assumption is very obvious when we, when we stop to look. We think, yes, this is going to make me happy. <laughs> if we don't stop to examine, if we don't stop to investigate, we're just acting blindly you know, out of this habit pattern of conditioning based on this assumption. But as soon as we begin to look, to trace back, okay, what is the fundamental understanding? then we can, we have the opportunity to bring in some wise discriminations. Is this understanding true or not? Is it true that having this cookie is going to make me happy? That consideration at least opens even a small possibility of a choice. If we don't see it, if we don't examine, if we don't measure, if we don't bring wise attention, back to the fundamental understanding, then we're just acting out. Maybe we notice in our lives patterns of angry speech. Maybe that becomes a pattern that we notice, or anger arising in the mind. What are the thoughts behind that? If we see that pattern, can we work backwards? Can we see what's the thought which is motivating? these actions. If we look carefully, very often the thought behind angry speech is, I want to hurt this person. Because anger is, anger is an act of violence. So there's something in the mind, yeah, I want to hurt this person. What would be the understanding behind that? What understanding would we be having that would generate that thought and then generate that action? Maybe the understanding is that a certain person hurt me in some way, and that it's right, it's appropriate that I hurt them back. You know, that that's our understanding of the appropriate reaction, the appropriate response to being hurt that is striking back. I mean, just imagine for a moment, sort of taking a bigger picture of this, cultures or societies where revenge is considered honorable. Where, that, where that's the understanding, that's the cultural understanding that revenge is an honorable recourse. It's so clear that that understanding will condition a whole host of actions based on a certain way of viewing things. So as we look more and more closely 
at what's behind our actions and what's behind our thoughts, it becomes so clear that attention to understanding plays an absolutely critical role in our lives. We must come to see clearly what are the assumptions, what are the basic understandings that we bring to life, that we bring to relationship, to experience. Because out of those understandings, everything is going to follow. It's for this reason that the Buddha placed right understanding first on this path of spiritual awakening. It's of such importance. He talked of the blessings and the harmony that come when we have a right understanding of things, when our understanding is correct, when we see things correctly, all kinds of blessings come from that because we're in harmony with the Dharma, we're in harmony with what's true. And how much disharmony and sorrow and suffering and malaise comes when we have a wrong understanding of things, when we see things incorrectly, because then all of our actions and our thoughts and our feelings are based on misperception. So what is right understanding? Fortunately, we don't have to start from scratch. We don't have to figure it all out for ourselves. As with so much of the teachings, the Buddha spoke with such lucidity and such clarity about the nature of things, the, the Dharma. Dharma means truth, it means realities. The Buddha wasn't teaching Buddhism, he was teaching the Dharma. He was teaching how things work. Can we get a clear view? Can we have a clear understanding of how things are? He described three basic aspects of right understanding. And another way of seeing this, another way of viewing this, is that these three basic aspects of right understanding really are the foundations of three great paths of happiness. That's what the path is about. It's about being happy. In the fullest and most complete and most meaningful way. The first aspect of right understanding is the essential underlying wisdom that wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective results. This understanding, this one understanding, is the foundation of the whole Dharma. That wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective results. This understanding, when we when we get it fully, it's the source point in our lives for every kind of happiness. Because we understand how things are happening, how things are unfolding, that it's not random, it's not chaotic, it's happening lawfully. (coughs) 
It's from this basic wisdom that actions bring results. It's from this basic wisdom that we can begin to make wise choices in our lives. If we don't have this, if we don't have this basic understanding, the basis of our choices is inaccurate. And so we find ourselves wanting happiness, seeking happiness, and yet doing the very things that bring suffering. So this aspect of right understanding is is just at the core of our practice and of our lives. But it places a great responsibility on us, tremendous responsibility, which is cultivating the ability to look at ourselves extremely honestly. And we are all a package of qualities. Each one of us, we have a lot of wholesome things going. We have a fair number of unwholesome things going. Can we look honestly at ourselves, at this package of who we are? And to practice letting go and abandoning and avoiding those unskillful actions and mind states which bring results of suffering. That's what this understanding is calling us to do. It's calling us to actually see clearly, see ourselves clearly, have some wise discrimination. Yes, these things are unwholesome. Can I let go? Can I abandon them? Can I not act on them? Knowing that they will bring unhappiness. And in the same way, recognizing those parts of ourselves, those parts of the package that are wholesome, that are skillful, that are beneficial, and strengthening them and acting on them, knowing that they're going to bring happiness for ourselves, for other people. It's because of this fundamental right understanding that actions bring results. Skillful ones bring happy results, unskillful ones bring unhappy results. It's from this understanding that we have the energy to begin to fashion our lives, to create our lives, rather than simply be victimized by deep patterns of conditioning. Just a few examples of how we can apply this kind of right understanding. Very simple, and it has many applications. When we know for ourselves directly that greed is unskillful, is unwholesome, it leads to suffering, leads to contraction. So what happens? Out of that understanding, we begin to have thoughts of renunciation, of letting go, of generosity. Those are the thoughts and feelings that begin to arise in the mind. And from these thoughts and feelings of letting go and generosity come feelings of metta, come feelings of compassion, come feelings of mudita. 
It's like this spiral upward of skillful states. Wanting to benefit others, wanting to alleviate the suffering of others, wanting to share in the happiness of others. All coming from a basic understanding as greed is an unwholesome state of mind. Thoughts of renunciation, of generosity, feelings of love and compassion and mudita. As these thoughts and feelings come, we begin to be less self-centered in our lives. That's the action in our lives which follows. These thoughts and feelings become the condition for actions of service, actions of compassion. And it's wonderful how it just spirals around again because with each of our actions based on these thoughts and feelings of love and compassion, in the actual act of service, act of generosity, the feelings of love and compassion and mudita are strengthened even further. And so we're in this energy wave of wholesomeness. We're, we're on this energy wave of happiness. All coming, all rooted in a basic understanding of what is true. We find our mind increasingly freed from stinginess, from pride, from self-centeredness. We become happier in our lives. Where is it all rooted? All rooted in a true understanding. Yes, greed is unwholesome. So simple when we see it clearly. Likewise, from the understanding that harming and cruelty are unskillful, what follows? When we know that, when that's our basic viewpoint, our basic assumption, harming, cruelty are unskillful actions. That understanding leads to thoughts of non-harming, leads to thoughts of moral integrity. We begin to act in that way. And these actions of non-harming, of moral integrity, in turn free the mind from resentment, free the mind from anger. This is an outstanding example of this. And something that, in a way, is very timely, even though this example is from a year or so ago. Uh, Statement made by a British hostage who was released from being held in Lebanon after four and a half years. And it's timely because the last of all the American hostages have just been released. Just in the last week or so, there's been a lot a lot in the news about that. And the stories are incredible. I mean, these people were held in you know, small underground cells, often chained to the wall or to outside uh, railings. Terrible, terrible conditions. This man, Brian Keenan, he was released last year after four and a half years of being held and tortured in horrible circumstances. And this is what he said. I feel no desire for vengeance. I feel no desire for retribution. 
I don't see them as positive. I don't see them as meaningful. I find those things self-maiming, and I do not intend maiming myself. And it's, it's amazing, just, and the power, he had a certain understanding, he had a right understanding that vengeance and retribution were harmful, not positive, self-maiming, because of his understanding. After those kind of circumstances, he was able to come out with a statement like that. I feel no desire for retribution, for revenge. I do not intend maiming myself. The power of right understanding. It conditions how we are, how we relate to all the changing circumstances in our lives, even when they're very drastic. So all these actions of generosity, of service, of compassion, of morality, they are leading, they lead to our own happiness. They lead to the happiness of others. And it all begins, it all has its root in the understanding that wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective fruits. This is the core. This is the essential core of the Buddhist teachings. If we start in our lives, or if we are living our lives from a place of wrong understanding, and there are many different kinds of incorrect understandings. Maybe we have the understanding that this life is all there is. That we're born and we live and we die and that's it. Maybe we have the understanding that there are no consequences to actions. There are lots of people in the world who are living their lives with that viewpoint. It doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't have consequences. Or that we live completely independently and separately from one another. Or that the way to happiness is through the accumulation of pleasure. That's another kind of understanding that people might have. Or that anger or hatred have no results. If we're living our lives with these kinds of assumptions, with these kinds of viewpoints, then the thoughts and feelings and actions that are going to follow will be very different. We'll be creating a vastly different life and a vastly different planet. This implication of, or statement of wrong view, summed up most profoundly in a Salem cigarette ad, which is just one of my favorites, which is this beautiful man and woman standing in a beautiful surroundings. Everything is beautiful. It's paradise. Two cigarettes hanging down. And the caption is, nothing stands in the way of my pleasure. And this is 
supposed to entice us to buy these cigarettes and to smoke them. But it's indicative. I mean, it's indicative of a certain mentality, a certain understanding, a certain viewpoint that's not so rare. But happiness is the accumulation of more and more pleasures. So it's critical that we begin to examine what are our own understandings of things? What are the assumptions that we're basing our choices on? Do we believe that the world is flat? Or whatever? Now it's really to look, to look to see what is the groundwork, what is the foundation of understanding that's giving birth to our thoughts and feelings and actions. It can be difficult, it can be quite difficult to see them. You know, they may be vague, they may be amorphous, we may not really know how to get a handle on them. Two ways which might help us to really look at our own basic assumptions, one of which I've mentioned, is working backwards from our actions. We take a look at our actions, especially the ones that are patterned, that we see we're doing over and over again, and really look back. Okay, what is it that we understand that's causing us to act in such a way? And another way is using the Buddhist teachings as a reference point, not as belief and not as dogma, because then it serves very little purpose, but really as a reference point from which we can measure and look and investigate our own assumptions. We can see, okay, what did the Buddha teach about greed, about hatred, about delusion, about actions having consequences, about the importance of morality, of meditation? We just look and we see, yeah, the Buddha laid this, this, and this out. Do I believe this? Is this part of my worldview? Is it not? Why? We really, we really investigate and can help clarify for ourselves our own belief system. At some point and at some level, we need to do this so that we can make wise choices. So we're not simply acting out, out of ignorance. So that was the first aspect of right understanding, that actions, skillful or unskillful, bring about their respective results. Tremendously important because it demands us of, of us taking responsibility for our actions, taking responsibility for understanding because our actions do have consequences. So we need to wake up, we need to say. There's a second part of right understanding. And that has to do with the path of happiness which comes from the practice of jhana, or concentration, samadhi. And this understanding, it's born in an interesting way. 
it's born out of coming to see the limitation of sense pleasures. And I think especially in the Western culture where there's so much and there's so much abundance and it's, the opportunities for fulfillment are so, they're all around us. It's one of the reasons I think that the Dharma is striking so deep in the West because we are beginning to question, is there something else? Is there some other realm of experience that is more satisfying, more complete, more fulfilling? than sense happiness, than sense pleasures. So this can lead us to the exploration of the path of samadhi, the kind of joy, the kind of inner peace that comes from that. Through the development of jhana practice, these states of absorption, the hindrances are all, they're all put to rest for that time. So the mind is free of fear and restlessness and worry and agitation and doubt and all the things which hassle us and hassle our minds and torment our minds, through the power of concentration, everything's cooled out. It's a tremendous sense, a tremendous place of well-being in us, of inner peace. And when these jhanas or absorptions are well cultivated, when they're well mastered, they become the basis of all these fantastic stories we read of psychic powers and supernormal powers and people doing these fantastic things, it comes out of this power of mind, this power of concentration. We can also use these jhanas or absorptions as the basis for insight because it suppresses the hindrances. The hindrances are no longer working at that time. When we come out of the jhanic state, the mind is very pure. It's very clear, it's very lucid. So when we apply it to insight, then the insight's very keen, very sharp. The example given is like, as if we want to cross a river, and having developed these path of jhana concentration, it's like rowing a boat instead of swimming. Instead of having to swim across the river, we're in a boat. The boat takes us across. Of course, Upandita Saida has, a, has also an interesting take on this. He says that often swimming is faster. You know, we're in the boat and it's sunny and kind of lay back and relax. <laughs> Just kind of you know, wandering around, enjoying the boat ride. And sometimes the, the act of swimming, the energy of dealing with all the difficulties actually gets us to the other shore quicker. It's just for different temperaments. <laughs> so the first aspect of right understanding is that skillful and unskillful actions will bring their respective results, happiness and suffering in our lives. That is core, that's essential. The second aspect of right understanding is what is possible through the path of samadhi, the path of concentration practice. And the third aspect of right understanding, really the third path of happiness, is right understanding of insight knowledge. And this insight knowledge can arise with jhana or without. Because it's insight into the three characteristics that we're refining 
our understanding of impermanence, of dukkha, of the unsatisfactoriness of impermanent things, of selflessness. The Buddha elaborated this path of insight into the three characteristics in his teaching of the five aggregates. And what's interesting is that this teaching about the five aggregates, I think, is the most common teaching to be found in the suttas. Just as you go through all of the Buddha's discourses, over and over again, the Buddha is talking about how what we call self is a collection of aggregates. So it's very important. It's pointing to something that's very essential for insight. Because it addresses the question with great clarity of what is actually happening in a moment. When we dissect our experience, when we look at our experience to see what is actually happening, not what we think about it and not our concepts, but really what is there, we begin to unpack it in this way. When we see, for example, when we're experiencing some physical sensation, maybe hardness or pressure or whatever, that physical sensation is the aggregate of rupa, of material materiality. Along with it, in that moment of experience, there's also a feeling of it being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That's another component of that moment. There's the physical sensation, the aggregate of rupa. Pleasantness or unpleasantness, the aggregate of feeling. There's the perception or recognition of it which distinguishes hardness from softness or hardness from pressure. There's some recognition or perception which distinguishes one moment from another. This is the aggregate of perception, and this is where memory is and all our concepts reside. Then there's the aggregate of the tendencies. All of those tendencies of mind, all of those other mental factors which condition how the mind is relating to the experience. Mindfulness, concentration, aversion, fear, compassion, love, all of these are the tendencies of mind, and they're all included in the fourth aggregate, in Pali it's called sankhara, the tendencies of mind. And the fifth aggregate is that of consciousness, of knowing, simply knowing the object. And all of these arise together in every moment, The five aggregates are there. Rupa or matter, feeling, perception, tendencies, and consciousness. It's a helpful model for sorting it all out. Our experience is going so quickly. Can we see clearly what is it that's, that's really going on? When we see it clearly in this way, when we understand this teaching of the aggregates, it frees the mind from the idea, the notion of self, of I. And as we're free of the sense of self or of I, 
it in turn removes so many causes of suffering in our lives. The increased understanding of selflessness, the deepening of that, is a fountain of blessings in our lives. It brings so much happiness because our lives then are on the track of a right understanding. We understand things truly. And so our actions are in harmony. When our actions are in harmony, happiness follows. There's a series of discourses in one of the collections of the Buddha which unpacks and dispels the notion of self, the notion of I, in a very incisive way. I'd like to end the talk with this one particular sutta. It's going to be a challenge for you to stay with it. So I invite you to the challenge. Because on the surface, it may sound quite philosophical and not connected to much. But if you can stay with it, for me, this discourse has been quite amazing because it's like watching the notion of self completely disappear. So we'll see. It's a story of a, of a young monk named Anuradha. And a group of other wanderers came to Anuradha. And they were talking of what happens after the death of the Buddha. And they were saying, and this is, a, this is an Indian philosophical formula, which you find very often, he exists after death, he doesn't exist after death. He both exists and doesn't exist. He neither exists nor doesn't exist. Okay, so it's just a kind of set formula covering all the bases. And Anuradha said, no, the Buddha is something other than that. So then they made a lot of fun of him. And they said, oh, you must just be a novice or you're completely deluded. So Anuradha was quite upset. And he went back to the Buddha and he recounted this whole story, wanting to find out what, what would be the appropriate response. So the Buddha asked him a whole series of questions. He led him through. So when you hear the questions, imagine, and these, these are the words of the Buddha, imagine that the Buddha is asking them of you. So the Buddha is asking a question, so you get into the get into the the depth of the dialogue. Okay, the first thing the Buddha asked Anuradha, there's a whole series of questions. Is the body permanent or impermanent? Anuradha answered, impermanent, sir. Okay, are feelings permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Perceptions, tendencies, consciousness, are they permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, sir. 
is what is impermanent, satisfying or unsatisfying? Unsatisfying, sir. Is what is impermanent, unsatisfying, subject to change, not subject to one's control? Is it proper to regard that as this is mine, this is self, this is I? Consider this carefully, this is an important point. Each of the momentary experiences of each of these five aggregates, each one is impermanent, and they're all just momentary. Is it proper to regard what is momentary, subject to change, not subject to control? Is it proper to regard that as I, as self, as this is mine? No, sir. Okay, stay with us now. Now, Anuradha, do you regard the Tathagata's body? Tathagata, in this case, means two things. It means the Buddha, and it also means all individuals, all beings, any being. Okay, so do you regard the Tathagata's body as being the Tathagata? No, sir. Do you regard the Tathagata's feelings, that quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness? Do you regard the Tathagata's perceptions, tendencies, consciousness, as being the Tathagata? No, sir. Do you regard the Tathagata as being apart from these? apart from the body, from feelings, from perceptions, from tendencies, from consciousness. The Tathagata is something else than this. No, sir. Do you regard him, do you regard the Tathagata as having no body, no feelings, no perceptions, no tendencies, no consciousness? Surely not, sir. Then, since in just this life, the Tathagata is not to be met with, in reality is not to be found, is it proper to say of him that he can be spoken of in some way after death? No, sir. Is he to be found in this life? Is the Tathagata to be met? Is the Tathagata to be found in this life? The Buddha, each one of us. Is the body self? Is feeling self? Perception self? No. Is there something apart from feelings, perceptions, tendencies? No. Is the self have no feelings, no tendency, no body? No. 
when we look, we see that the self, the Tathagata, the I, is not to be found, not to be met with. There's no one there at all. There's an appearance of a being from certain conditions coming together. From the aggregates interrelating, there's the appearance of a being. It's an appearance in just the same way that a rainbow is an appearance. A rainbow appears because of certain conditions. It has no self-existence. There's no thing called a rainbow. It's an appearance coming from conditions. Self, I, the Buddha, every being is not in truth to be met. It's an appearance of these aggregates interdependent, interplaying. So when Anuradha answered all of these questions, Buddha said, well said, Anuradha. Buddha went on, both formally and now. It is only this that I teach you. What suffering is and what is its end. Let's sit for a few minutes. And as you said, and this of course is the great challenge of practice, without a lot of discursive thought, but see if in some way in being with just the ordinary flow of experience, the breath and sensations and thoughts, you begin to get a sense in each moment and in the flow of experience that it is the flow that what is really there are these aggregates in different relationship. There are the sensations and the feelings and the perception of what it is and all the tendencies of mind, and the knowing, the consciousness. And not any one of those components is self, is I. They're just different of the aggregates functioning in their way. It's really resting in the emptiness of phenomena, resting in the emptiness of self. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.